There are few serial criminals who have committed the range of crimes as Franklin Delano Floyd. When he was finally arrested for kidnapping a boy he claimed was his son in the 1990s, decades of mysteries were uncovered. And as of April 2020, only one of them remains unsolved. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. I want to thank everyone for sharing the episodes I've been putting out recently. I've had just so much more engagement on social media than usual. I definitely appreciate hearing from everyone. I've been kind of awful at responding promptly with as many distractions going on in my life as I have right now, but I've been trying to catch up. I do read everything, even if I get distracted, before I respond, so thank you, everyone who has reached out. If you listened a few weeks ago to my episode about Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow and wished I would do more convoluted and confusing cases, you're in luck today. As always, I will do my best to make this something you can follow, but I also make no guarantees. There are two or three murders, three missing kids, and several aliases. I'm not even sure what to name this episode because it's about a lot of people who used a lot of names. Quick content warning, you know I'm never graphic, but this episode deals with childhood sexual abuse. You know if you're in the headspace for this or not, and always take care of yourself first. This episode will be here later, or you can just tune in next week when it's not a child abuse case. I will also say if you're in a passive listening mood, Maybe save this for another time when you're a little bit more focused because we are going on a journey. It's hard to know where this story even starts, so we're just going to drop right in to the beginning of 1989 in Tampa, Florida. 18-year-old Cheryl Ann Camesso began working at Tampa's Mons Venus Strip Club as a dancer. She wanted to get into adult entertainment on a bigger scale. This was just step one for her. Her goal was to eventually work in pornographic films. While working at the club, Cheryl met another dancer named Sharon Marshall. Sharon's age seems a little hazy to most people, but she was around 19 or 20 at the time. Sharon lived with her father, 45-year-old Warren, and her infant son, Michael, who was born in March 1988, shortly before she started dancing at the club herself. Cheryl and Sharon became good friends very quickly, and they had similar goals with their careers in adult entertainment. Cheryl's aspirations were her own, but Sharon's actually seemed to be largely driven by her father, Warren. He helped Cheryl and Sharon take erotic pictures separately and together to send them off to someone he claimed he knew in L.A. who was looking to cast for movies. If you think it's cringeworthy, a father would be sexualizing his daughter this way, you're not the only one. Warren was eventually banned 
from the club Sharon danced at because the club's owner thought it was inappropriate and creepy the way he would come in and watch her. Yeah, he was at a strip club, and he wasn't looking at the other women. He was looking at his daughter. So he got banned. He had to wait out in the parking lot for her. But it was shortly after Cheryl was working at the club that Warren started telling people that he was dating Cheryl. And Cheryl wouldn't deny it, but she also wouldn't confirm it. When people tried to warn her away from him, those who knew him from before Cheryl started at the club, she would brush it off. She thought he'd help her career. At some point, Cheryl and Warren were alone on his boat, and he made sexual advances towards her. She turned him down, and then he closed fist punched her in the face. He jumped on her to attack her. She got up, and she managed to get away by jumping off the boat. It doesn't appear Cheryl went to the police with this, but she was angry, and she was not going to just take that from him. So to retaliate against Warren, she called the state. She turned him and Sharon in for welfare fraud. Warren rarely worked, and Sharon was making decent money at the club, but that was money and tips that she was not disclosing to the state. So Sharon was getting Medicaid, which is free health care, for herself and Michael, her son, as well as welfare checks based on faked income numbers. It was in March of 1989 that Sharon and Warren were notified their benefits were suspended pending an investigation. This set Warren off. I don't know how he knew it was Cheryl who turned them in for welfare fraud. It may have just been the timing that it came right after he had assaulted her. But it's also possible Cheryl said something to someone else who then told someone else who then told Sharon. After learning that these checks were not going to come anymore, Warren called the club and yelled at the person who answered, demanding to be given Cheryl's address. He said he was going to get Cheryl for hurting his family and that she would regret it. Of course, no one was giving him Cheryl's information. They don't give information to anyone, let alone an angry man on the phone. Protecting a dancer's real-life information is standard security at a club. So Warren, not knowing where Cheryl lived, showed up at the club one night, and he got into it with Cheryl outside in the parking lot. The argument was broken up before Cheryl was hurt, but witnesses said Warren was in a blind rage. Knowing that he had already hit her before, a lot of people at the club were worried about her safety. Roughly two weeks later, during the first week of April 1989, Cheryl left the house she shared with her dad and her brother. She had packed a bag and told her brother she was going away but would be back the next week. When Cheryl didn't come home, her family wasn't terribly concerned. Cheryl did her own thing. She was not the type to check in all the time. She was young. She was just 18, but she was fiercely independent. 
It wasn't until mid-May that the family realized something was wrong. Cheryl's father got a call that her car was found abandoned at the Petersburg Clearwater Airport. He had helped co-sign the car, so his name was on it, and that's why he was called. His first thought was, okay, so Cheryl flew wherever she went. But he made some calls to family and friends who she might have gone to visit. And not only wasn't she there, no one had heard from her in about a month since she had left her house. The airport said the car had been there since April 7th. This is right after Cheryl told her brother that she was going away. So yeah, Cheryl was the type maybe to leave her family for a month to go off to do something, but her dad knew she would not have left her car, not long enough for it to be considered abandoned. This car was her pride and joy. She sunk tons of money into it to customize it. So leaving it behind like that, that alarmed her family. So they called the police and reported Cheryl missing. Around the same time that Cheryl's car was being found and her dad was calling around to her friends and family, Warren Marshall told a neighbor that he, his daughter, and his grandson were all going on vacation. I suspect they're one of the families that got a phone call or heard that Cheryl's family was looking for her because this is when he decides they need to leave. Warren asked the neighbor if she could get the mail for him and mow the lawn because he would be gone for about a month. He intended to arrive home around June 15th. She agreed and never saw Warren, Sharon, or Michael again. On June 15th, instead of returning to Florida, like he said, Warren and his quote-unquote daughter, Sharon, got married in New Orleans to each other. Warren was now using the name Clarence Hughes, and Sharon changed her name to Tanya Dawn Tadlock. They began presenting one-year-old Michael as their son together, rather than grandfather-daughter-grandson. The day after the marriage in New Orleans, the trailer they were living in back in Tampa burned down in an apparent arson. It's a 10-hour drive from New Orleans to Tampa, so it's absolutely possible that Warren, or rather Clarence as he's now known, drove back there to set the fire and then left. He then called his neighbor and told her that they were not going to come back and to just burn all of his mail that she had been saving for him for a month. And just like that, Warren and Sharon Marshall no longer existed. They stayed in New Orleans for a few months. On August 11th, Sharon, who is now Tanya, gave birth to a baby girl. She placed the child for adoption with a couple who paid Clarence $10,000 in an informal arrangement. After the adoption, Clarence, Tanya, and Michael showed up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Tanya started dancing at a local club. She danced seven days a week, only taking off holidays when the club was straight up not open. She would often show up with bruises, and she confided in the other dancers a little. She talked about the abuse at home with her quote-unquote husband. She said that Clarence made her work while he couldn't because of a bad back. 
He's the reason she had to work so many hours a week. He made her do it. And Clarence demanded that she turn over every dime she made to him. The dancers at the club barely knew Tanya. She had really just shown up. But people liked her from the start. She very quickly built a friend group, and everyone was worried about her. A few encouraged her to leave, but Tanya said Clarence would kill her if she did. But by April 1990, maybe seven months into their stay in Tulsa, thereabouts, Tanya had started a secret relationship with a man who was her own age and was making plans to take Michael and leave with this other man. But that was not going to happen. On April 25, 1990, just outside of Oklahoma City, three men driving off the highway towards a Motel 6 found a woman lying on the side of the road. They called 911 at 12.55 a.m., and she was rushed to the hospital. The woman had no identification on her, but around her were scattered groceries, milk, a loaf of bread, two bottles of soda, so police assumed she had been walking from the truck stop slash convenience store down the road when she was hit by a car that then took off. They also found headphones and a Walkman or portable radio nearby, so she may not have even heard the car coming up behind her. A check with the night clerk at the convenience store proved that their theory was probably pretty spot on. The woman had been in the store at 12.30 and bought the items before leaving and walking in the direction of the Motel 6. The woman's injuries included bruises to the back of her legs and a massive wound to the back of her head, as though the car hit her from behind and threw her up onto the hood. But they also noticed other bruises on her body, older, somewhat healed ones, and wondered if she was a victim of abuse. The woman was unconscious when she arrived at the hospital and occasionally stirred, but she never came to enough to tell them who she was. There are some witness reports indicating that she did mutter one word, and that was daddy. Hours later, Clarence showed up to the hospital and identified Tanya. He said he had fallen asleep after she left to walk to the store, and he hadn't realized she never made it back until he woke up. He went to the truck stop to look for her, and that is when he heard about the accident. Clarence told the police that they were staying at the Motel 6 because Tanya had a gynecology appointment in Oklahoma City, though the investigation never found any evidence of an appointment. They checked Clarence's car and found no damage indicating it was involved in this crime. There were red paint flakes at the scene and a radio antenna. So the assumption was that the vehicle in question was likely red and it would be found missing the antenna. None of that matched Clarence's car. But Clarence was acting strangely. We all have different reactions to trauma, but Clarence's reaction was one of almost complete disinterest. 
a detachment. It was to the extreme that it triggered the suspicions of everyone around, the nurses, the doctors, the police. He seemed to just genuinely not really care that Tanya was unconscious in a hospital bed. It didn't help when Tanya's friends at the club heard about the accident, and they told the police that Clarence was abusive, controlling, and they were convinced he had to have been involved somehow. They don't know how, but he had to have been. After four days in the hospital, Tanya was stable and showed signs that she may recover. Then after a visit from Clarence, she took a turn, and five days after the accident, Tanya died. Cause of death was the head wound, and the case was marked a homicide. There was no link found on the autopsy that would make it seem like Clarence did anything during that last visit to cause Tanya's decline, though I don't know if they were specifically looking for that or not. Sometimes you won't find something unless you look for it. Clarence had been called by the hospital when Tanya took this turn, and he was told to come up, be with her, and say goodbye. He told them that he couldn't make it, so to go ahead and donate her organs and then cremate her, and he was not intending to hold a funeral. When Tanya's friends at the club in Tulsa heard about this, the club's owner called Clarence and told him he would pay for the funeral himself if Clarence would just agree to it. Clarence then agreed with the stipulation that any service was a closed casket. Clarence then called the Department of Human Services to ask about voluntarily placing Michael into the foster care system short term. He said his wife had just died and he needed someone to take the two-year-old for a week. He would be able to take back custody on May 7th. There are some reports floating out there that say he abandoned Michael at the hospital after Tanya died like he didn't really care what happened to him, but that is not borne out in the court records. Clarence 100% intended on getting Michael back. DHS took Michael and placed him with an experienced foster family in Choctaw, Oklahoma. It was during this initial week Michael was in foster care that Tanya's funeral took place. Clarence showed up with newly dyed red hair, with the dye staining his neck. He was erratic and a bit of a mess, rude and vaguely threatening to all of Tanya's friends. And then the police showed up during the funeral and took Clarence in for questioning. They learned that the birth certificate Tanya had used to get an Oklahoma driver's license was fake. It would later be revealed that the real Tanya had died 20 years before as a toddler from a severe illness. Clarence refused to say anything about his wife's past, claiming it would only hurt her memory or something like that. With nothing to hold him on, Clarence was released. Clarence did two things next. 
First, he called the insurance company, who held two policies on Tanya's life, totaling $80,000. Both policies had been purchased just months before her death. The second thing was Clarence tried to get Michael back from DHS, and they refused to give him back. So both of these things have a story. With DHS, it became clear when Michael was taken into care that his first two years of life were rough. He was, across the board, developmentally delayed. He had severe behavioral outbursts, to the point that the foster family wasn't sure they could handle him. And this was an experienced family. Then a friend of Tanya's went to DHS to say that Michael was neglected by Clarence while Tanya was in the hospital. She also said Clarence was abusive to Tanya, and she believed that Clarence likely killed Tanya. Clarence, of course, became enraged when the social worker told him he couldn't just take Michael back. That's his usual response to losing control of a situation. And this was even more frustrating for him because there was really nothing he could do about it except go through the courts, which was something he really didn't want to do. But things changed for him when he tried to file the claim for life insurance. Clarence called just hours after the funeral. The agent said he was sorry for Clarence's loss and he'd begin the process immediately. He just needed Clarence's social security number. Clarence gave it and the agent put him on hold. He came back and said, the number doesn't exist. Clarence apologized and gave a second number. Same thing, didn't exist. Clarence said it must be the stress of losing his wife that made him give the wrong social security number, twice. He then gave a third number. This time, it went through, and a name popped up, Franklin Delano Floyd. And finally, we have someone's real name here. The agent said everything was fine, and they'd process the claim. And when he hung up the phone, the agent then called the authorities, because Floyd's name wasn't the only thing that showed. He was flagged as a wanted fugitive. So here's what we know about Floyd's past. He was born in 1943 in Georgia, the youngest of five children. His alcoholic and abusive father died at the age of 32 of liver and kidney failure, likely a result of his drinking. Floyd was only one years old, and his mother, Della, tried to support the kids on her own for about a year and a half when she just couldn't do it any longer. Della then placed the children in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home, which would only take children who were truly without parents, truly orphaned. If there was a living parent, like in this case, that parent had to relinquish their rights to the children and agreed to only visit twice a year. A lot of the reporting that I've gathered while looking into this says that Della then ran off, abandoning her children in the home. But then I read the book, A Beautiful Child by Matt Birkbeck, which I highly recommend. In that book, which was meticulously researched, he learned that Della actually wrote to the home 
a number of times, asking for more contact with her children, extra visits. She really missed them, and she continued to be denied. She did visit them as allowed for years. It sounds like she did the best she could with what she had in what was really an impossible situation for a poor young mother in the 1940s. Floyd was only two when he and his siblings entered the home. Honestly, it is too upsetting for me to imagine a two-year-old in the neglectful, institutionalized environment of a home like this. So we're going to skate on past the details. Just imagine everything a two-year-old needs, and all Floyd basically got was the minimal food and shelter part of it. Floyd grew into an unruly child. Surprise, surprise. The home had a hard time controlling him. He did not respond to their usual discipline methods, which generally meant fear and abuse. In 1959, Floyd was 16 years old when he ran away, broke into a house, and stole food. He was caught, but at this point, the home, frankly, did not want him back. His older siblings had all aged out and left at 18, so authorities called his sister Dorothy. She was married with a family of her own and agreed to take Floyd in if they wouldn't prosecute him for the break-in. This arrangement only lasted a few weeks. Dorothy's husband thought Floyd was too dangerous to have in the house with their small children. A local judge took him in for a few months until Floyd ran away. He wanted to track down Della, his mother, who he last knew as living in Indianapolis, Indiana. When he found her, he learned that Della was a sex worker living pretty much hand to mouth. There was very little she had left to offer him, but she did sign paperwork for him to enter the army. Floyd managed six months in the service before they realized that he was too young, even with parental permission, to enlist, and he had lied about his identity. All of his papers were basically forgeries. They kicked him out, and with nowhere to go, Floyd became transient, stealing to get by. In 1960, at about 17 years old, Floyd broke into a Sears department store and tried to pry open the gun case. This triggered the alarm, and the police responded to the scene. There was a standoff in which Floyd was shot in the stomach, but he obviously recovered. I don't know the resolution to this case, but we know he was free in June 1962 because now he's 19 and he was arrested for a much more serious crime. He was in a bowling alley in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, when a four-year-old little girl wandered out of the bowling alley's nursery. Her parents were at their usual Sunday night bowling game. Floyd kidnapped the little girl, took her to a wooded area, and sexually assaulted her. I went through the newspaper archives I have available, and I could not find much more information than that. I don't know how he was caught, except that he was. Floyd was found guilty on the molestation charge, with the kidnapping charge having been dropped. 
he got 10 to 20 years. In November 1962, Floyd was in prison when he was sent to the hospital for psychiatric testing. At this point, people are realizing that there may be some underlying issues going on with Floyd. On March 14, 1963, just about four months after being transferred to the hospital, he escaped. The next day, he robbed a bank. This bank robbery made the news mainly because of a unique feature of it. Floyd was caught on a security camera. These were obviously fairly novel in the 1960s, and it was just a still photo, but it's pretty obviously Floyd. Nowadays, we assume bank robbers are caught on multiple cameras. Not so much 60 years ago, so this was in all the papers. Floyd was arrested on March 26th, which was about a week and a half later, and he said he robbed the bank to get the money he needed to appeal his conviction. He was given another 15 years for the robbery. Then in September 1963, six months after being put back in prison, he tried to escape again with two inmates. They stole the prison's fire truck and rammed the gates. In 1971, Floyd was nearing the point where he could be paroled. He was transferred to the federal pen in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where he had been initially arrested. And the next year, he was released to a halfway house after about 10 years behind bars. Two months into his stay at the halfway house, he was formally paroled. A week later, Floyd was arrested for attempting to abduct a woman. A friend of his posted his bond, and Floyd disappeared. And soon he was not Franklin Delano Floyd anymore. His next known alias at this point was Trenton Davis, and he was living in Oklahoma in 1975. This is what investigators looking into Tanya's death and Michael's custody found out. Floyd jumped his parole, and now his 18 years on the run were over. Except, by the time they realized this, Floyd was back on the run. After he gave his real social security number to the insurance agent, he realized he was likely going to be found, and he left Oklahoma. Thank goodness he gave himself that dye job, so no one would recognize him with red hair, I'm sure. Except about six weeks later, they did manage to track him to Augusta, Georgia. Floyd was arrested, and from behind bars, he actually tried to regain custody of Michael, resisting all attempts to terminate his parental rights. He hired a lawyer who argued Floyd would take parenting classes in jail, and when he got out, he would pursue a home and a stable income. The judge approved this plan, and Michael began visiting Floyd once a month at the prison while he still lived with his foster parents. But the judge also ordered a paternity test, which Floyd straight up, flat out refused to take. He said he was Michael's father. He paid child support while he was in prison, and they didn't need the test. Eventually, Floyd was compelled to do a swab, and it came back that he was not Michael's father. He had no standing to contest custody, 
So his visits and his rights were immediately terminated. Michael's foster parents put in an application to go ahead and move forward with an adoption. But Floyd appealed to this ruling, saying he wasn't given an evidentiary hearing over the results from the paternity test. After Floyd was released in March 1993, after he spent 33 months in jail, the order was actually reversed. His rights were reinstated pending this evidentiary hearing. Because it was reversed, supervised visits started again, and at this point, Michael is five years old. He had spent three years in this foster home, and Michael had made huge strides. He was catching up to his peers. He was sweet and gentle. He had none of those outbursts that they had seen earlier on. He had really healed and was catching up. He was sweet and gentle with those behavioral issues, a thing of the past. His foster family had hope that the judge would see this and not return him to Floyd, who, first of all, is not biologically related to Michael, and second, he has a conviction for child molestation. But Floyd seemed to think otherwise because he kept pushing. In the spring of 1994, Floyd's singular focus was to get Michael back. He even managed to get an apartment and a job all in one. He worked as a maintenance man at an apartment complex and lived on site. Now remember, Tanya had to work seven days a week at a strip club because Floyd's back hurt too much for him to work. Now that he needs to get Michael back, he's working as a maintenance man full-time at an apartment complex. What we've seen about Floyd and what you're about to hear shows that, for the most part, he does whatever he needs to to get what he wants. Except here, he screwed up. In July 1994, a woman walked into her apartment at the complex where Floyd worked, and she found him rifling through her underwear drawer. He was holding a knife. Floyd saw the woman, he rushed her, and she tried to defend herself, cutting her hand on the knife in the process. Floyd punched her, but then her boyfriend walked in. She hadn't actually come home alone. She was just ahead of her boyfriend. Floyd ran, and the boyfriend chased him, caught up to him, and held him until the police arrived. Any chance he had, or hoped to have, of getting custody of Michael back was gone. Floyd had no standing as his father. He lost his job and his home after this incident. And he had a long criminal past. He couldn't claim it was in the past anymore because he was just arrested for attacking a woman. The state fought against giving him bond since he went on the lam once before, but he was granted bail. On September 12, 1994, he was free on bail when he showed up at six-year-old Michael's elementary school in Choctaw around 9 a.m. The principal, James Davis, did not know who he was. 
Floyd was wearing a suit, but it was wrinkled, and he looked just generally disheveled. But Davis invited Floyd to sit, and while across the desk from him, Floyd said he needed Davis's help in getting his son back. And then he pulled a gun. He directed Davis to get Michael from his class. Now Davis has a decision to make. It wasn't so much about his safety versus Michael's, but he had a school full of children. He had to quickly decide what he needed to do to try to keep everyone alive. So he decided to comply. So Davis went to Michael's classroom and told the teacher he needed to see him. When Michael came out in the hallway, Floyd led Davis and Michael out to Davis's truck. He then drove them all to a secluded area where he handcuffed Davis's arms around a tree, duct taped his mouth, and then left with Michael. But only after he came back a couple times to ask Davis questions about how to work his truck. Davis was sure when Floyd came back with the random questions that he was going to shoot him. But he didn't. Floyd left him alive, but in a remote enough area that he didn't have a great chance of being found. Davis managed to get the duct tape off of his mouth and start yelling. Hours later, he was found and rescued, and he immediately gave all of the information about the kidnapping. Initially, hope was high that Michael was safe, relatively speaking. Floyd had spent a ton of time and money trying to get custody, and now he had it. They expected Floyd was going to try to go off the grid and raise the boy on his own under some new identity. But worry over how safe Michael would be grew when authorities were reaching out to people from Floyd's past in the hopes they could track him down. One person who knew him back in the 1970s in Oklahoma showed police a picture he had of Floyd and his daughter, Suzanne Davis. You see, this is when Floyd showed up as Trenton Davis, and he had a child with him. Police did not know that. In this portrait, Suzanne looked to be about five or six, and honestly, the investigators could tell almost right away that this was Tanya as a child. There was enough resemblance between her as an adult and Michael that it was obvious. Floyd's deceased wife was actually maybe his daughter, except they suspected from the start that she wasn't. There was no record of Suzanne Davis before Floyd enrolled her in school in 1975. There was no record of Floyd having a child. He would have been in prison when Suzanne was conceived. To authorities, it looked like Suzanne Davis, a.k.a. Sharon Marshall, a.k.a. Tanya Hughes, was a kidnapping victim herself. Investigators then learned that in 1978, Suzanne's babysitter made allegations that Floyd was sexually abusing his daughter and he took off ahead of any arrest. 
Two years later, they emerged as Warren and Sharon Marshall in Georgia. Sharon eventually went to high school. She was active in the ROTC. She got amazing grades. She was incredibly intelligent. She eventually got a scholarship to go to Georgia Tech. Because of how successful she was in school, it was hard for many to see behind that and realize how awful her upbringing at home must have been being raised by her kidnapper. When Sharon got pregnant in her senior year of high school, her quote-unquote father wouldn't let her accept the scholarship to Georgia Tech or attend college. Sharon was upset about this, of course, and she tried to run away with the father of her baby, but Warren found them, told the father he was not the father, and then Sharon had the baby, which was a boy, and placed him for adoption. And at some point, Warren and Sharon show up in Phoenix. Sharon then got pregnant with Michael while living in Phoenix, and the pair left, not even telling Michael's father that she was pregnant. Investigators followed Sharon's trail then to Tampa, then her transformation to Tanya, and then her death. But the investigators could not break through in the other direction. They went through missing child reports, but they could not figure out who this little girl was before she was Suzanne Davis. But they had a bigger immediate problem, obviously, since Floyd was underground again, this time with Michael. It was too late to save Suzanne, but maybe they could get to her son in time. The first break came on October 22nd, 1994, in Dallas, Texas. The principal's stolen truck was found. Michael had been missing for six weeks, but a search of the area turned up no evidence of Floyd or Michael currently in the area. This may not sound like a big break, but... Just remember, the principal's truck was found. We will come back to this later. Now, the big break that located Floyd happened in November 1994 when Floyd made a huge mistake. He must not have realized that the authorities had his laundry list of aliases already. He couldn't have realized that they knew about his time in Tampa because he tried to renew his Florida driver's license, the one he had under the name Warren Marshall. He was doing it over the phone because he wasn't in the state, so he gave the licensing bureau, DMV, whatever they call it in Florida, he gave them his mailing address to send the updated license to him. Of course, Warren Marshall popped up in connection to this case, so Florida called the FBI. Floyd was then arrested in Louisville, Kentucky, where he was living, for the kidnapping of Michael. But not only was Michael not with him when he was arrested, a search of his apartment showed no signs that a child had ever lived there. So now investigators are trying to track Floyd backwards. How did he get from Oklahoma to where he was arrested in Louisville, Kentucky? This would hopefully help them narrow down where Michael was, but we have to be honest here. Hope that Michael was still alive was dwindling. Investigators learned on September 20th, Floyd was in Atlanta, Georgia, where he stole a car. The next day, 
He checked himself into Grady Hospital for psychiatric observation, and he spent eight days there. He told them that his wife and son had recently died, and the grief was more than he could handle. He did not give many details about how his wife and son died. On September 29th, he checked himself out of the hospital, and the next day he used a one-way bus ticket to get to Kentucky. He only bought one ticket. So whatever happened to Michael looked like it happened in the nine days between when he was taken from his school and when Floyd checked himself into Grady. The police have Floyd in custody, so of course they ask him, and he was quite chatty about a lot of things, but not much about what mattered, like where Michael was. In regards to Tanya, he said he was dating her mother, who was a sex worker named Linda Williams in Indiana. She was a drug addict, and he took Tanya in 1974 to save her from that environment. But Floyd denied he ever had a sexual relationship with Tanya. It was always a father-daughter relationship, and the marriage was just to give Michael a name. It also would give Floyd legal rights over him in the event something happened to Tanya. He said that is all the marriage was about. And as far as Michael went, Floyd's first story was that he didn't kidnap him at all. The mafia did. They had been chasing Floyd, and that's why he ran after Michael was kidnapped, not because he's the one who kidnapped him. But that implausible story was not the only story Floyd would tell about Michael. He would later admit that he was, in fact, the one who took Michael, and he gave him to a friend in a foreign country. Floyd was only in Louisville to get passports, and then he would rejoin Michael. But he, of course, wouldn't say where Michael was. Like Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, you're just going to have to take his word for it that Michael was okay. At some point after this, Floyd called his sister Dorothy from jail. She called the FBI afterwards, very upset, to report what he said to her. Floyd told her that he drowned Michael when Michael wouldn't say that he loved him. He then put Michael in the trunk of a car. Now, Dorothy doesn't seem to have any reason to make up something like this, and her story was backed up with some evidence. It's not hard evidence. But on January 14, 1995, the police found the car that Floyd had stolen in Atlanta. Well, let me rephrase. They found the car that Floyd allegedly stole in Atlanta the day before he checked himself into the hospital. Cadaver dogs strongly indicated on the trunk. But a search of the car didn't find any hard evidence of Michael being in there. Because it's only alleged that he stole the car, they can't really draw a straight line between Floyd and that car and Michael, especially if it's just cadaver dogs indicating on the trunk and not something more substantial like blood evidence or DNA. On January 18, 1995, Floyd was indicted for the kidnapping of Michael Hughes. The trial was held in March, and Floyd went with 
two unusual choices. He opted for a judge rather than a jury, and he decided to defend himself. Floyd's defense was that this was not a kidnapping because Floyd had a right to take Michael as his legal parent, and Michael had been removed from his custody unjustly. I'm sure you've already guessed the judge was not swayed by that argument, and Floyd was found guilty. The prosecution suggested a life sentence based on the likelihood Floyd had also killed Michael. The judge settled on a 55-year sentence with no parole, though Floyd could shave off some time for good behavior. But at 52 years old, it was really unlikely Floyd would live long enough and accrue enough time off his sentence to ever be released. It was not technically a life sentence, but it would serve as such. So Floyd is in prison for the rest of his life, but our story is not done yet. We still have a few more mysteries to solve, like what happened to Cheryl Camesso and who was Tanya for real. The resolution to Cheryl's case began while Floyd was on trial for Michael's kidnapping in March 1995. And it took two threads halfway across the country from each other to solve this case. The first was when skeletal remains were found off Interstate 275 in Pinellas County, Florida. Due to the overgrowth around the remains, it was estimated that they were there for at least three years. Investigators went back an additional two years to 1990 to pull missing persons reports in an attempt to identify these remains. Of course, Cheryl went missing in 1989, so her name was not on the initial list. But the same month in Mission, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City and home of my favorite Irish dance school, a man who owned an auto shop started work on a truck he bought. The truck had been stolen, dumped, and then sold at an auction, which is where this man bought it. Stuck between the bed of the truck and the gas tank, the man found a manila envelope. He opened it and pulled out a stack of photographs, almost all provocative, and several of children. There were also photographs of a woman who was bound and beaten and alarmed at finding basically a stack of child pornography and a possible snuff photo, he called the police. This truck, this was the principal's truck. This is the one that Floyd took from Oklahoma when he kidnapped Michael. Let's talk about these photographs that were found in as little detail as necessary. There were 97 photographs. They were all small, and they were cropped in odd sizes. Some of them were of Tanya as a child and a teenager. Others were of other women and children. And then there was the set of this woman who was bound, beaten, and mostly undressed. Based on her appearance, authorities believed the photographs were taken when the woman was either near death 
or already dead. The police wanted to identify this potential murder victim quickly, but the information they had was too broad to put into a database. It just kicked out thousands of leads. They needed to narrow it down. And they noticed that the woman had pretty deep tan lines. Looking at where Floyd had lived, they decided to pursue his time in Tampa first. They called down to Tampa and sent the photographs. The police there recognized the jewelry and the bikini in some of the pictures as belonging to their Jane Doe, who had been found off the highway. They also noticed that at least one of the facial wounds in the picture matched the damage to their Doe's skull. Since Floyd lived in Tampa in 88 and 89, they pulled those missing persons' cases and found Cheryl Camasso. After getting her dental records to compare, they were finally able to identify Cheryl a year after her body was found and eight years after she went missing. I mean, what a very specific set of circumstances that came together to solve this. It gives me goosebumps and reminds me of how much luck is required to both solve crimes and to get away with them. Floyd, thankfully, was having a string of bad luck in that regard. The photographs were a huge part of the case, particularly when the FBI noticed someone's thumb was visible in one of the pictures of Cheryl. They used that photograph to match the thumb on four or five different points back to Floyd. They also had neighbors and friends from Tampa look at some of the photographs, and they were able to point out things in the background that belonged to Floyd when he lived in Tampa. The pictures of Cheryl, the couch was Floyd's, the layout of the trailer was identical to Floyd's trailer. It's going to be difficult for Floyd to convince anyone that he didn't have something to do with this. In November 1997, Floyd was indicted on one count of first-degree murder in Florida, and he was extradited two years later from the federal prison where he was serving a sentence for the kidnapping. But there were a lot of legal hurdles to get this to trial, and that included Floyd being declared incompetent to stand trial against his own objections. He was offended to be deemed mentally incompetent. That ruling was eventually reversed, so the trial began in September 2002. Floyd was not going for an insanity defense, but he was putting on that sort of show in court. He kept arguing with the judge, he would yell at witnesses, he was cursing. Michael's kidnapping was allowed in, though of course the defense fought to keep it out. They did manage to keep a lot of elements out, like that he used a gun. But Floyd was really angry that it was allowed in at all. He figured a jury would automatically find him guilty of Cheryl's murder if the state so much hinted that he hurt a child. That would just turn the jury against him. And he's probably not wrong here. 
that this would prejudice the jury. But I think the photographs of child pornography were not going to exactly help either. Now, Floyd's defense was basically that this was a setup, that the FBI doctored the photos and planted them. He had been wrongfully convicted in Michael's case, and he just knew that was going to happen again. After four hours of deliberation, Floyd was found guilty. When he heard the verdict, he started yelling some more. He was talking about being framed, and then he was taken from the courtroom. During the penalty phase at the sentencing hearing, Floyd started his antics up again, but the judge gave his lawyers the chance to talk with him, and Floyd returned to the courtroom more docile. For mitigating factors, his defense brought up his childhood in the group home where he was abused physically, emotionally, and sexually. There's no debate that his upbringing was horrible. But Floyd refused to let his attorneys bring in any psychiatric evidence. He was the only witness for mitigation, though his attorney did try to get in an oral argument that covered much of what a doctor would have said, more or less, if Floyd had let him testify. But he didn't. There seems to be nothing worse in Floyd's mind here than to be considered mentally ill. He didn't want to be deemed incompetent to stand trial. He didn't want to have any psychiatric evidence that would help him maybe not get the death penalty. He didn't want any of that. Eventually, it was ruled that the aggravating factors of the crime outweighed the mitigating factors, and Floyd was sentenced to death. Unlike his yelling of the past, Floyd seemed to just take this. He has appealed over the years unsuccessfully. In 2007, as he was trying to appeal, he got deemed incompetent to proceed again. This would also obviously become a barrier to his death sentence being carried out. Floyd is currently housed on death row at the Union Correctional Institution, which is north of Gainesville. As he is 76 years old, I think the odds are he will die of a natural death on death row before he's executed. But we're still not done. Let's move on to who Tanya was before she became Floyd's victim for 15 years. Floyd, over the years, refused to say anything. A few families were DNA tested to see if Tanya was their long-lost niece, but nothing panned out. And then suddenly, in 2014, Floyd gave enough information in an interview with the FBI, that they finally had a solid lead. They needed to find a woman named Sandy, who Floyd had a relationship with. The FBI tracked Sandy down, and they showed her that photograph of Tanya and Floyd from when Tanya was five or six years old. At the time, she was going by Suzanne Davis. Sandy took one look at this photo, and she said, that is her daughter and her ex-husband. Her daughter's name was Suzanne Savakis, and her ex-husband was Brandon Williams. She said Brandon took off years ago, taking Suzanne with him. So there is a bit of a backstory here, as you can imagine. 
1974, a year after Floyd had disappeared while on bail, he showed up in North Carolina where he met Sandy and he gave his name as Brandon Williams. According to a coworker of Sandy's at the time, Sandy was a single mother. She had three small daughters. They were in the custody of social services, and she was pregnant with a son when she met Floyd. Sandy was very quickly taken in by Floyd's charm and his love of children. He assured her that he was going to help her get the kids back and raise them together as a big happy family. In April 1974, Sandy gave birth to her son, Philip Stephen Brandenburg. When Philip was a month old, Floyd and Sandy married, they got custody of the girls, and Brandon convinced Sandy to move the family to Texas. In May 1975, so about a year into their marriage, Sandy said she got arrested for passing a bad check, and she was sent to do 30 days in lockup. When she got out, Brandon and her children were gone. She managed to find her two middle kids in a children's home where Floyd had abandoned them, but Suzanne and Philip were missing. That fall, Brandon, a.k.a. Floyd, a.k.a. Trenton Davis, enrolled Suzanne Davis in school in Oklahoma. Philip was nowhere to be found. Sandy said she tried to report the children missing, but the police told her that Brandon had a right to take them as their stepfather. DNA tests would prove that Tanya really was Suzanne Savakis, and after around 40 years, she finally had her name back. Suzanne's family gained some answers as to what happened to her, but maybe too many answers at the same time. What happened to Suzanne as her name was changed to Sharon and then Tanya? It was horrible. She was brilliant and kind and dedicated and loyal. Floyd took all of her potential away the day he took her from her mother. And as much as Floyd said he had a father-daughter relationship with her, we have photographic evidence that he abused her sexually as a child. But solving Suzanne's kidnapping in 2014 opened up a new missing persons case, the whereabouts of Philip Brandenburg, her baby brother. Okay, so this baby brother didn't make a lot of sense to people looking at this case. Suzanne's sisters were four and three when she and Philip disappeared. The older of the two had vague memories of a baby, and the younger one did not. There were no baby photos, even though he was over a year old when he went missing. He was never mentioned by Sandy over the years, and no one talked about him almost like he didn't exist. So during the investigation, people were wondering, did this baby ever actually exist? On the other hand, this seems a very odd thing for Sandy to have made up. She could have just said Suzanne was taken, which we know, it's been proven. Why bring a fake baby into it? We now know that the baby was not fake, 
that has been verified very recently that he exists. As in March of 2020, we learned what happened to baby Philip. A few years ago, it would be a surprise for a 45-year-old mystery to have a sudden solve like this. But thanks to familial DNA, it's less surprising each year. But this one wasn't solved through familial DNA. What happened in this case was that in the summer of 2019, a man named Philip Patterson, who went by his middle name Steve, asked his mother Mary about his birth parents. Steve had known he was adopted most of his life, and he was now in his mid-40s at this point. He was a father and a grandfather himself, and his own father had just died, and maybe that's what made him curious to know more about his birth family. Mary was open to giving him the information. This was not a closed adoption where she didn't know the birth family. So she sat at the computer, and she did something she had not done before. She typed in Steve's full birth name, Philip Steve Brandenburg. And then she saw him pop up as an endangered missing person on the Doe Network, which then went on to give some details about what happened to Suzanne. Mary and Steve were both shocked, and they reached out to find out how do you report yourself as a possible missing person. Mary was not sure where this confusion came in because she had adopted Steve as an infant, not when he was over a year old like this missing child report made it sound. She actually knew Steve's birth mother, Sandy, when he was born. They were co-workers, and they were both pregnant at the same time. Sandy decided to give Philip up for adoption shortly after his birth because she said her new husband, Brandon, who was not the baby's father, didn't want her to keep the baby. It seemed almost too perfect of a placement for Mary to take the baby. Her own baby, born two days before Steve, died after only a few hours, and this was the second baby Mary and her husband had lost shortly after birth, which was just so devastating. They were thrilled at the opportunity to adopt Steve. The adoption was not yet finalized when Sandy moved with her three girls and new husband to Texas, leaving Steve with parents who were madly in love with him. So we have two stories here. They can't both be true. Mary is saying she legally adopted Steve when he was an infant, and Sandy voluntarily placed him with her. And then we have Sandy saying that she had him until he was a year old and her husband had then kidnapped him. Mary had plenty of proof that she had Steve since he was an infant. A long-awaited baby dropped on her lap during her grief. You better believe she photographed that baby doing pretty much everything. Steve took a DNA test and it confirmed in early 2020 that Mary's story was true. Sandy had placed Steve for adoption a year before Floyd took off with Suzanne. So Philip slash Steve was never kidnapped and he was never missing. He had been adopted. 
I've not seen any comment from Sandy about this story. It honestly makes people question if she ever tried to report Suzanne missing or how much of the rest of her story isn't true. Maybe this really is the only lie she told, and it could have simply been to get Philip's name out there in the media. So maybe she could possibly find him and be reunited. That's all I can really think of as a justification. I don't know the whole story here, but we do know that Philip, who, when I researched this story, was sure Floyd had killed, is actually alive and well, raised by parents who loved him very much. Michael, though, Suzanne's son, is still a missing child. Floyd has gone back and forth about what happened to him, but he eventually did say he did kill Michael. He shot him when he realized that Michael's time in foster care made him lose his connection to Floyd. He said he left his body near the Texas-Oklahoma border and gave police a roundabout area where he had buried him. A search, though, didn't turn up anything. After all these years, it was unlikely that they would have found much. Animal activity would have scattered the remains, and his clothes would have decomposed. But police were hoping something would be found, like metal from his clothing, a zipper or a buckle, just something to corroborate Floyd's newest story. But they found nothing. This case has so many moving parts that all center around this one man, Franklin Delano Floyd. He brought horror everywhere he went, and he got away with it for so long. We need to be willing to take a look at the life of someone like Franklin Floyd, someone who saw others as useful objects rather than people, and wonder how he got there. How can we keep other people from turning into Floyd? Was he born that way? Or was his very severe emotional neglect and the physical and sexual abuse enough to turn off parts of his self? If we look at the time he had Suzanne, every time she got pregnant, never by him, by the way, it was always with a boyfriend, but every time she made that connection with someone, he would uproot her and move her away. He just would not let her make connections, connections that did not serve him at all. He made her give up two of her children for adoption. No one knows exactly why he allowed her to keep Michael, why he fought for custody, or even why he most likely killed him when he kidnapped him. Did Michael no longer serve a purpose to him? He did abuse girls and not boys, so keeping Michael and not keeping the little girl that Tanya had after, that's a question. Psychologists can debate the answers to all of these questions, but I think it's very possible that Floyd doesn't even know why he did what he did. But we do have more answers in this case than we usually have in cases like these. Cheryl's missing persons report was a cold case when she was found, identified, and her killer was brought to justice. Suzanne got her name back. Philip, who everyone thought was dead, was found alive and well. The only missing piece is the whereabouts of Michael Hughes. 
It is unlikely Michael is alive. Floyd had no close associates because he moved around and changed his name so often. Very few people from his old lives ever followed him into the new ones. He was able to just cut contact with no looking back. It's unlikely he had anyone he could have left Michael with. It's very unlikely, to say the least, that Floyd would have gone to prison for the rest of his life rather than give away Michael's whereabouts if Michael was okay. Floyd does what serves him best in the moment. That's the bottom line. He doesn't have a selfless bone in his body. If revealing Michael's whereabouts would have gotten him out of prison, he would have done so. But in the event that Michael is out there and alive, Michael Anthony Hughes has brown hair and brown eyes and a scar on his forehead. If alive today, he would be 32 years old and age progressions are available. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Michael Anthony Hughes, call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 